Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. You ever have a conversation with a friend and the end of the conversation just kind of leaves you at a point where you just have to agree to disagree? That's really the only proper resolution at the end of that conversation. And maybe as something inconsequential, uh, maybe you're just determining the best place to get a hamburger. And one of the people uh, think In-N-Out is the best and the other person is just wrong. Um, and so those, those two people at the end of that conversation, they just come to a point where they agree to disagree. The opinion on the matter isn't going to jeopardize the friendship or the relationship. In fact, there's some enjoyment that comes in the debate, in the conversation, in the disagreement. And so you just come to a place where you just agree to disagree. And the disagreement doesn't mean your friendship is ruined or broken, but it just means that you're going to extend grace in this area. We jump back into Acts chapter 15 today from our series we started last year. And as we do, we're going to see a really big disagreement threaten the church. And what they don't do is they don't take this huge, big disagreement they have and simply say, we agree to disagree. Because there are times in our life where there's a disagreement on something that's so important, so crucial, so valuable in our life that we can't agree to disagree. In fact, we have to sort through the disagreement to come to a place of understanding. And this is what we see in Acts chapter 15. As we dive into it, we're going to notice that uh, as we looked at it last year, Acts is really, it's part history book. We get a lot of historical lessons that are accurately according to the timeline of history. It's part prescription pad. We're getting a lot of how-tos and uh, cures for our own lives. It's uh, partly a mirror because you get to see how the church acted in the New Testament, and oftentimes it reflects how we could act. But ultimately, it's the record of the church being born. As we kind of unpacked it last year, we saw that the church would go through three different phases, the first being the church starts. And we see that in Acts chapter 1, we see that the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And in that uh, narrative in the first couple of chapters, we see the church is born with really spectacular results. Uh, thousands and thousands of people are coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And just a few chapters later, as the church grows and really has this population explosion, they start to scatter because of the persecution they're facing. Now, uh, Genesis 50 or Genesis in somewhere it says is what, uh, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is kind of the scenario in the first few chapters of Acts. The persecution was designed to stop the spread of Christianity but we know what happened instead is actually it scattered. It ended up growing even more. In fact, every time you see persecution recorded in the book of Acts, usually the next verse or the next verse after that says, and the word of God multiplied, the word of God spread. So the church begins to scatter. And the last few chapters, we've identified this third and final phase of the book of Acts where the church is sent. And that's where we are today. As we read through the book of Acts, the purpose of Acts, it's there in your notes and there on the screens. Acts tells us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world through a spirit-empowered church despite internal obstacles 
and external opposition. Now, if you were to go back and go through our Facebook archives or go through our podcast archives and listen to the messages so far through the book of Acts, what you'll notice is that every single time we've studied the book of Acts, a portion of this purpose is highlighted. Sometimes we'll see about the the kingdom of God being expanded. Sometimes we'll see the spirit-empowered church and what it means to be uh, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Today, we're looking at that phrase where it says, despite internal obstacles. That's where we'll be today. So as we get started, the premise for the book of Acts is this. The gospel is for everyone. Everyone say that out loud. Ready? Begin. The gospel is for everyone. So when the gospel is spread and the church is sent, what God is doing is he's sending us a message that says... The gospel's for everyone. It doesn't matter what nation you come from. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic class you have. It doesn't matter what occupation you have. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. None of that matters. The gospel is for everyone. And as a result, the beautiful thing about the church is everyone ends up being represented in the church. Every socioeconomic, every culture, every, uh, every nation should be represented in the church What was happening in the book of Acts is this, because everyone was represented, the status quo all of a sudden is threatened. What was normal is no longer normal. We'll be be picking up in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says this, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless, everyone say that word, unless you are circumcised. According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, what was happening is here is it was very difficult for some of the Jewish Christians to accept that Gentiles could be brought into the church as equal members without first coming through the law of Moses. Now, every time you hear the word Gentiles in the New Testament, internally in your mind, you should associate that word with outsiders. Gentiles are the outsiders. The Jewish people are the insiders. And so the Jewish Christians, the ones who are insiders, God's nation, God's people, had a really hard time understanding that because Gentiles were being brought into the church, these outsiders were being brought inside the church, and they were allowed to do so without going through the law of Moses. It's as if we had a front door entrance and everybody began using the side doors. And people started parking in the alley, and they used this door. And people started coming through this side door here. And uh, some people started using the church. And no one was using the front doors. And the Jewish community was waiting in the lobby for the Gentiles to come through the law of Moses. But instead, they were coming in from all other ports and already gathering in the sanctuary, in the church. So the Jewish Christians were very concerned about this. It was one thing to accept the occasional God-fear in the church, someone already sympathetic with Jewish customs, but it was quite another to welcome this large number of outsiders, this large number of Gentiles, who had no regard for the law and no intention of keeping the law. On their recent missionary journeys, Paul, Barnabas, the other leaders of the church, founded churches with these Gentiles without bringing them under the law of Moses. And so scripture is very careful. Verse 15, verse 1, some men came down, these specific men came down 
teaching the brothers, teaching the others in the church, hey, unless they walk through the door of the Jewish law, they cannot be saved. Agree to disagree? This was not going to be one of those times. This was not a side issue. This had something to do with salvation itself. How is one made right with God? Now, let me warn you and then give you a light at the end of the tunnel. Today's message is about this huge, doctrinal, heavy, theological idea called justification. Justification. How are we made right with God? How are we justified before God? What is the process that allows us to stand before God and be justified? So the majority of this message is going to be unpacking this justification theological idea. And at the end, we're going to answer the question, why does this even matter today? Why does it matter for us today? And we'll get there, but stay with us. Now, this disagreement was at the core of what they believe. As Satan saw this unfold... I can't help but imagine that he loved to see this disagreement take center stage. First, he would want the false doctrine of justification by works to succeed. He would want us and the church to embrace this idea that we had anything to do with our salvation. Because if we can earn our salvation, then it follows logically that we can unearn our salvation. But secondly, Satan really appreciated this disagreement because what he probably wanted nothing more was a costly, bitter doctrinal war to split and sour the church. And so this may be the greatest threat to the work the gospel has seen so far. Let's pick it up in verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, what does no small dissension mean? It was a big one. After they had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas really showing the hearts of true shepherds and leaders in the church to confront and dispute those who insist on promoting this false way of teaching. And it's not that we want to make a big deal on everything in the church, but when something or someone threatens a core tenet of our faith, it is our duty and responsibility to confront it and dispute it. So Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to have the matter settled by the apostles and elders. They couldn't just agree to disagree because at the core of their question was this— What does it mean to be justified or made right before God? Every time you see that word justified, it is this idea of being made right with God. How are we made right with God? Well, the Pharisees in the church taught two different ways. So the Pharisees taught this. People could only be justified or made right before God by keeping the law. If you're following in your notes, by keeping the law. The church taught people could only be justified or made right with God on the basis of what Jesus had done, not what we do. So the Pharisees taught that you had to keep the law. The church taught Jesus has done everything that needs to be done. There's nothing we can do. Keep those two thoughts in your mind. We'll keep reading. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, 
They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, circumcision was a Jewish rite of passage that was used to identify them as God's people. And so for them, for a person to come to faith, they chose to honor that tradition of the law and say, if someone comes to Jesus, that's fine, but we still need to circumcise them. They still need to identify as Jewish as well as a Jesus follower. They were asking for a little bit extra. Many of those who opposed Paul and Barnabas were Christians who had been Pharisees, and the Pharisees were well known for their high regard for the law, their desire to obey it. And so they weren't arguing. I want you to understand they weren't disagreeing because disagreeing is fun. By the way, it is fun, right? I mean, if you ever have a conversation with someone and they just choose to have a a statement and then you just think, oh, I'm just going to disagree with them. See, Mitch, you're laughing. I think you probably do this all the time, man. Um, I'm sorry I called you out like that. Where you just pick the opposite just to have fun, just to disagree, just to have a little enjoyment there. That's not what's happening here. They are disagreeing because they wholeheartedly believed you have to come to Jesus through the law. You have to come to Jesus in a relationship with him through the law. And so if the Pharisees believed anything, this is what they believed. You could be justified before God by keeping the law. So for a Pharisee to really become a Christian, they had to acknowledge, they had to forsake their attempts to justify themselves by keeping the law and accept the work of Jesus instead of keeping the law. So Paul and Barnabas, as they preached, as they built these churches, they didn't allow the pagans to merely add Jesus to their pantheon of Roman gods and accept Jesus as one of their gods. Remember the story a few weeks ago we shared um, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember how they were, uh, they were asked to bow down to this image of gods? And what we learned was it wasn't just a god that they were bowing down to. It was this image of all the gods that they accepted. And they were going to add Jesus, the Almighty, the uh, Adonai, the, the Almighty God, to this pantheon and saying he's just one of the rest of them. Paul and Barnabas are not allowing that to happen. You cannot just add Jesus to the rest of your traditions. But they commanded that they had to turn from their vain gods into the true God. The Pharisees who had become Christians had to do the same thing. They had to turn from their efforts to earn their way to being accepted by God. And it leads us to a question, who are they trusting for their justification? Who are they trusting to be justified? Who are they trusting to be made right with God? And if they're trusting the law, the ironic thing is this. They truly believe that by keeping the law, they were God's people. The ironic thing is this. We have a whole Old Testament full of scriptures where they repeatedly did not keep the law. Right? We were, uh, someone was talking about this morning, Judges or Joshua, and they were talking about the cycle of believers, and they were talking about how so repeatedly the, the God's people, his chosen people, the holy nation, you know, Israel, 
would just repeatedly go through these cycles of sin. So even them, even in their own historical data of the Torah and the Old Testament and what the prophets recorded, would understand that, yes, if, if it meant keeping the law, and that's how we identify it as Jesus is our God's people, even we don't qualify because we haven't done so. Now, so far in our reading, five verses in, quiz time, who's a Pharisee that has spoken so far? Who was a former Pharisee? Paul. Paul is mentioned. He's part of the group that went to Jerusalem to talk about this justification issue. So Paul was uniquely aware of what it meant to be a Pharisee and to turn his life to Jesus. These are the two things that the Pharisees would teach. That first, Gentile converts must be initiated into the Jewish faith through circumcision. And that these Gentile converts must live under the law of Moses if they were to be right with God and embraced into the Christian community. So basically, their teaching was this. You are free to come to Jesus, and we welcome you here, but you must come through the law of Moses in order to come to him. You can be a Christian... You just have to do it our way. Now, we can imagine how they would have made a case from the Old Testament, like we said. But uh, write this verse down. Uh, It's not in your notes, but Galatians 2, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul writes about this. And again, Paul is a former Pharisee. He is, uh, there's there's a few scriptures in Philippians where he gives his resume as a, as, as someone who has kept the law, someone who's from the right tribe, someone who had uh, done all the things you're supposed to do as a Jewish person. This is Paul's words in Galatians 2. He says this, We know that a person is made right with God by faith in Christ Jesus, not by obeying the law. And we have believed Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one, everyone say no one, no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So Paul uniquely understood the challenge for this audience to, uh, to come to an understanding of what the law was designed for and how Jesus changed all that. Let's continue in our narrative. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Verse 7. After there had been much debate. By the way, I would have loved to have seen that. Like, what did that look like? Uh, were voices raised? Was it proper? Was it, um, yeah, I would just love to have seen that debate. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse eight, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. In other words, in verse 10, why are you giving them a standard that our people could not live under? This yoke was the the farm implement designed to allow two strong uh, animals to work together for a common cause. It was the burden that allowed them to, under that burden, they would work together. And Paul, Paul is as Paul, Peter is saying, Peter is saying, man, why are we saying that they have to come through the law? Our people couldn't have done that. 
For years and years and years, we have not been able to bear this. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So are Christians made right by faith alone or a combination of faith and obedience to the law? Is the work of Jesus enough or should we add work to Jesus' work? Again, this huge doctrinal theological idea of justification. How does this apply to us? We're going to get there in a minute. Paul gives them their heart and gives them his heart and says, boy, if God had acknowledged these Gentiles or outsiders as full partners in his work, then why shouldn't we? We have no right to look at these outsiders and say, you must come in through a certain door. You must come in through a certain way. Uh, remember Peter's vision a few chapters ago? Uh, what was it, Acts chapter 10, maybe 11, something like that? Peter has this vision, um, and it's about food, right? There's this sheet, and a sheet comes down, and all of a sudden there's all kinds of food. The problem is there's clean food for a Jewish person, and there's unclean food, right? And according to Jewish custom, if clean food came in contact with unclean food, not only was the unclean food not fit to eat, but also the clean food was contaminated, right? So none of it was fit to eat. The voice from heaven comes out and says, Peter, rise up and kill and eat. And Peter says, no, nah, it's a test, man. I'm good. I know the law. I'm not supposed to have the bacon or the other food that touched the bacon. The bacon essenced other food. I know I'm not supposed to eat that. Voice comes from heaven and says, again, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I, I know this is a test. I'm going to stay honorable to my Jewish culture, my heritage. I will not eat. The third time it comes, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. He wakes up from his sleep. There's a knock at the door. And, and at some point, the Holy Spirit tells him, Dude, you got to answer the door. The, the people at the door are about this sheet. This is all together. I, the vision wasn't just about food. It was about people. There's no such thing as unclean people and clean people. Peter ends up going through this, this huge transformation in how he sees people. And those of the sect of the Pharisees who believed through, though that the Gentiles were common or unclean, they had to be holy and clean by submitting to the law of Moses. This was setting their world upside down. They looked at Israel's history under the law with eyes of nostalgia rather than truth. And so if they had been carefully considered Israel's failure under law, they would have been probably quick to also put Gentiles there. Let's keep reading verse 12. Again, Peter's insisting that there's one way of salvation and there's one way for all of us. This is what happens next. The assembly fell silent. They were debating and now they're silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. I love this verse in this whole narrative. All the assembly fell silent. I love that because it really shows the heart behind the people involved in this disagreement. Again, it wasn't just two sides of uh, 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 a debate table where they were just debating because that was enjoyable. They weren't doing it just so that they would be, uh, be able to um, pioneer their side and just stick to their guns. They were truly trying to come to a consensus on what it was like to be made right with God. 
And when they heard from Peter and Paul and everyone speaking, they came to a point in verse 12 where they fell silent and they listened. What I wouldn't give for more civil discourse where we could just figure out what it looks like to come together and reason together as Paul and Barnabas did. As a community, as a society, we're missing this element. They didn't want to endlessly argue the issue, but were willing to admit where they were going to change course. Essentially, this was their premise. God has accepted the outsider, shouldn't we? Church, can I tell you, God has accepted the outsider. Shouldn't we? Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. By the way, this is like a who's who of the New Testament, this chapter. You have Peter, Paul, Barnabas, the Pharisees. James is speaking. Everyone's getting a chance. He says this, brothers, listen to me. By the way, this is not the James that was martyred. For those of you keeping score, uh, there was a James that was martyred in Acts 12. This is not the same James. It's a different one. Most historians believe this is the... uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, the brother of Jude, the author of the book of James. So this is a different James. Verse 14, this is James speaking. He says this, Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Verse 16, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tents of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. Look at verse 17. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the who? All the outsiders who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James says this, therefore my judgment, verse 19, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. It was interesting because James insisted that God had a people among Gentiles using the very scriptures the Jewish people treasured and adored. In this passage that he's quoted in Amos, it actually says that salvation will come to the Gentiles just as it does to the Jewish people. And it demonstrates to us that God did have among the Gentiles in his plan. James basically says, leave them alone. They came to God the same way we did, by faith, by grace. Now, the last three verses we're going to read, James um, gives some instructions on how to welcome the outsider in. And he gave some commands that had to do with the eating habits of Gentile Christians. And I don't want to ignore them. They were not bound under the law of Moses because they're Gentiles, they're outsiders. But they're now bound under the law of love. If you say you're a Christian, then love has to be the... The, the primary way we interact with one another. And so basically what James is saying, we, they shouldn't a, uh, unnecessarily antagonize their Jewish friends and neighbors. So these are the instructions he gives them. Verse 19 says, Therefore my judgment is this, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Verse 20, But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, for what has been strangled and from blood. Verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who, hit, those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Here's the underlying factor on these last few um, encouragements from James to the Gentiles that are now coming into their place of faith. 
Gentile Christians had the right to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. They were not uh, prohibited under the Jewish law. But what he's saying is this. He's encouraging them to lay down their rights to these matters as a display to love to their Jewish brethren. Just like Peter was asking the Jewish people, you need to lay down the standards that you have for these Gentile people because they are equal brothers and sisters towards you. James is now asking the Gentiles, hey, these ways that you interact with this food, that you interact with these other relationships, these are the standards you should be keeping, not because it earns you salvation, but because you're equal brothers with your Jewish friend brothers now. And we want to interact with them on a, on a metric of grace rather than obligation. You see, our call as followers is to extend grace as God has extended grace to us. And I'm telling you, where there's grace, people will find freedom and they'll find forgiveness. And when there's no grace, we're bound, we're shackled, we're imprisoned, and people will neither find freedom or forgiveness. This applies to us in so many different ways, but I was just thinking um, as I was preaching that we tend as a church body sometimes individually and maybe collectively as a group to put undue expectations on people when they when they join the faith. And, and, and we'll say, we'll, we'll, in our minds, we'll say, well, um, please come to Jesus and please dress this way and please act this way and please uh, sing these songs and please worship this way and, and pray this way and do all of these things. And what, what James is saying is so powerful there in verse 19. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Church, our judgment should be, we should not trouble those who are trying to come to God. So we want to be a church where we give every person the opportunity to come to Jesus. And we want to extend grace at every measure because as we extend grace and we find people where they are, which is exactly what Jesus did, by the way. Every time in the New Testament you see Jesus interacting with someone who's not a part of the faith, he met them where they were and he extended grace and what that person found was freedom and forgiveness. And our hope is that our church, our space can be the safe place for people to find freedom and forgiveness. Man, freedom from the past, freedom from the guilt, the shame, the expectations they've ever had, uh, freedom from forgiveness, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, freedom and forgiveness, the forgiveness that comes from Jesus Christ that allows you to enter into a personal relationship with the loving God. You say, Daniel, you don't know what their past is like. I know this, Jesus loves them and wants to have a relationship with them. Daniel, you don't know what they did on the way to church. I don't know what you did on the way to church. But I know this, Jesus loves you, and he wants to have a relationship with you. Say, so, Daniel, you don't know the last time, you don't know the last time they were in church. I know this, he loves them, and he wants to have a relationship with them. And if that can be our guiding principle as our church, if that can be our guiding value, people will find freedom and forgiveness. So why is this disagreement on justification so important? Why is understanding justification so important? Isn't that why we pay you, Daniel? (laughs) 
the reason why this huge, fundamental, doctrinal, theological idea of justification is so important is this. In your notes, what we believe about justification will shape how we live out our life. How we live out our faith. Let me explain that. If we, if we trust what and who we trust for justification will impact how we live out our faith. It'll shape how we live out our faith. So if we, in any percentage, trust ourselves for justification, that will shape how we live out our faith. If we trust our own efforts in justification, you know what happens when we hit a wall spiritually? We trust ourselves to get through that wall. If we trust our own efforts to be made righteous before God, you know what happens when there's unbearable grief in our life? We try to shoulder that on our own. Now I can tell you as a church family, we've gone through a whole lot of grief recently. And maybe you have as well, personally and individually. And people you have lost and, um, and things that you have lost. And you're grieving the loss of relationship. You're grieving the loss of a loved one. You know, just like, like a family talk here. Boy, um, I'm so grateful Bob Watson's not in pain anymore. I'm so immeasurably grateful that he gets to recognize the face of his Savior. I'm so immeasurably grateful that he gets to be over there with family and friends. And yet the grief of today is still powerful and it leaves a hole. And what we believe about justification, how we're made right before God, if there's any part of us that believes that we get to do it on our own because we went to church a certain amount of times or because we gave and, or because we, uh, we did all of these little things that are, are things that we should do because of our faith, not for our faith, if we in any way trust those other things in our life, you will begin to trust yourself to get through these moments. So what we believe about justification will shape. Here's the thing. If we truly come to a place where we trust Jesus and Christ and Christ alone, you know what happens when there's unbearable grief in our life? We just get to a place where we say, God, I can only do this with you. You know what happens when there's unbelievable financial pressures in your life? You get to raise your arms and surrender and say, Lord, I can only do this with you. You know what happens when there's a relationship that just goes sour and you're not sure why and you've extended forgiveness and there's nothing returning and a friendship you thought was a seminal relationship in your life is now gone. You know how you get to get through that? You get to say, Lord, I cannot do this without you. Justification is a really big idea because it will shape how you live out your life. If you have your Bibles, go to Galatians 3. I don't think it's in your notes. I know it's not in the slides. There are times when Paul will write to the church. 
And so uh, when he writes to the church, every once in a while, it doesn't happen very often, so it's, um, it's like when you're watching, um, it's like when you're watching a movie, and then they say the title of the movie in the movie, and you're like, oh, hey, yeah, Princess Bride, he just said it, that's the name of the movie, Princess Bride. There are times when Paul will write in the New Testament, and he'll identify his audience, and that happens in Galatians 3, he says, oh, Galatians. For the context of today, do we believe that scripture is written to you and I? Yes or no? So for the context of today, I just want to replace Galatians with Rosebergians. Is that all right? Is it Rosebergians or Rosebergers? I just, I, every time I say it out loud, I just get hungry. We started with in and out We're going to end with in and out I'll see you there in an hour and a half. Uh, I'm just kidding. Rosebergians, right? So in this verse, he says Galatians. He addresses Galatians. I'm going to replace that one word with Rosebergians, okay? Galatians 3, verse 1. He says this. Oh, foolish Rosebergians. Who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Verse 2, he says this. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Verse 2, he says this. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? And then he, he answers that rhetorical question. Of course not. You receive the Spirit because you believe the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human efforts? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Paul's saying this. You receive the Holy Spirit by faith. Why are you trying to live out your life to be perfect on your own? It's a foolish errand. Don't do it. Because you received it by faith, let's do our best to live out this faith. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, as we think through justification, for many of us, this is a big, lofty theological idea that perhaps has no real-life application. Until today, I hope. Father, I pray that as we consider that we are truly justified by what you have done for us, not of anything we have done, may we also live out our life that way. May we live out our life in a way that fully acknowledges our total dependence on a Savior. So that when we go through great seasons of difficulty, we will not try to shoulder that responsibility on our own, that we will not try to just gut it out like we've done in the past. That we won't just try to 
grit and bear and do it on our own, but that we will simply come to a place of surrender that says, I cannot do this apart from the grace of God. May justification take real application in our daily walk. May it be something that we get to live out every day. And may the evidence of what we believe be the way we simply trust you with our Mondays and our Tuesdays and in our every days. May we not be like these foolish Galatians who receive the Holy Spirit by faith and yet on their own try to live out this perfect life. May we recognize how foolish that quest would be. May those hearing this message who have never just fully formed their faith in you and never given their life to you, may today be the day of salvation. May they share that decision with someone today who they're sitting with or who they came to church with or who they're watching this live stream with or someone they're listening to the podcast with. For parents that are struggling with their family and and how to parent in such a confusing time. For those single adults who are navigating life and making big decisions. For those just on the edge of retirement, looking at the last few years of working, for those who are fully retired, who are in this new normal for themselves. For teenagers who are listening, for children who are here in the service. May we just walk away with this utter dependence on you in our life. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.